I'm Kai Wright, and these are The Stakes. In this episode, The Climate Hustle. So, Kai, a few weeks ago, I went to D.C., and I went to visit the Trump International Hotel. Have you been there before? I have not. So it's kind of like a really nice hotel. You walk into the lobby, and the entire ceiling is made out of glass. It actually kind of looks like a European train station. It's very open, and there's steel beams, and the furniture is gorgeous. Much more classy and tasteful than I would imagine. And it is very expensive, right? Rooms there cost about $1,000 a night. It is a very nice hotel. Operated by the President of the United States and his family, we should say. That's right. And the lobby kind of acts as this place where people go who want to get the president's attention. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a hub of power in D.C. So while I was walking through, I actually saw Anthony Scaramucci. The self-proclaimed mooch, <laughs> the former communications director. Right. And access to power might also be why what's probably the country's largest gathering of climate change deniers mm. picked this hotel. So this is Heartland Institute's 13th International Conference on Climate Change. And more accurately, it is ground zero for climate change, denial, and skepticism. Hi, good morning. How are you? You're welcome to take any. Thank you. Do you want to see what I got there? <laughs> yeah, this is this will be good. So, like any good conference, it came with lots of stuff. Nice big bag of swag. Yes. Okay, here we go. I'm going to show you. Oh, good grief. Uh, No, I got a lot of stuff. (laughs) Okay, so there's a book, Nothing to Fear, A Bright Future for Fossil Fuels. (laughs) Oh, my God. Dumb Energy, A Critique of Wind and Solar Energy. And then there is, like, a lot about the Green New Deal. I even got this pin. So, basically, this is a no Green New Deal pin. There you go. So, you know, one of the first things that I noticed when I was walking around was that I was really in the minority. There's not a lot of women here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I did the thing that you do when you see, like, one of your kind. Uh, yeah, right. You're like, hey, girl. And, and she's, she's like, like, I'm not whatever. your girlfriend. <laughs> exactly. That is 100% what happened. And if you look around here, you see it's mostly old white men. You know, it's not planned that way, but... You know, we do need to develop some interest among young people. So this is Steve Malloy. He's a longtime climate change skeptic, and he claims to have ties to the Trump White House. Why is it all old white men, by the way? Well, because, um, first off, we've been doing this for 30, 40 years. Right, so now if you're in uh, university and trying to get a PhD, you can't be a climate skeptic. You're finished. And it's been like that for about 20 years now, so it's mostly old white men. So think about when this conference took place. It was July 25th of this year. Records fell like dominoes today. It hit 109 in Paris. That is the highest temperature ever recorded there. The Arctic was on fire. Siberia's wildfires have got worse as our planet warms up. The ice in Greenland was melting into slush. The Greenland ice sheet has lost 160 billion tons of ice through surface melting alone just in July. And yet to the people inside the Trump Hotel, the world is cool and comfortable. We never had an ally in the White House before. Uh, so yeah, Trump is fantastic. I love, I love Trump. Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. It could be warming and it's going to start to cool at some point. 
A room full of climate skeptics have the ear of the most powerful person on the planet. And they have a plan, a plan for continuing to sow confusion and doubt, and for undermining one of the most important environmental protections we have for fighting this problem. So how did we get here? How did we get to where people still want to argue the realities of this issue? Amanda Aronchik has the story of the origin and future of climate change skepticism. Okay, so I want to go back to June 23rd, 1988. This was a big day in the history of climate change. Because that afternoon, a NASA climatologist by the name of James Hansen sat before the members of a Senate committee for a hearing on something called the greenhouse effect. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. Dr. Hansen, if you'd start us off, we'd appreciate it. This wasn't the first time he'd presented his findings to Congress, but this time was different. Chairman and committee members, uh, we're going to have to talk right into the microphone. As Hansen adjusts his microphone, he looks uncomfortable. That's because at the moment he's speaking, the temperature in Washington, D.C. is close to 100 degrees. Forecasters are predicting no relief from the haze or the heat this weekend as temperatures will graze. It was one of the hottest days of one of the hottest years. Two things we know we probably won't be doing this weekend. One of them is watering the lawn and the other one could be breathing. At least uh, health officials... The room is hot. So when Hansen makes his case, his forehead is shiny with sweat. The global warming is now large enough that we can ascribe, with a high degree of confidence, a cause and effect relationship to the greenhouse effect. In short, Hansen declares, global warming has begun. Altogether, this evidence represents a very strong case, in my opinion, that the greenhouse effect has been detected and it is changing our climate now. And this time, did anybody pay attention? Yes, because the heat works. So this is like climate change's big coming out moment. It's front page news and Hansen gets invited on all these TV shows. And at this point in time, many Americans are learning about climate change for the very first time. Everybody believes the sweaty scientist from NASA, because why wouldn't you? Why would I believe him? And the important thing to note here is that climate change is not a political issue yet. It's not up for debate. To say that this issue has sides is about as productive as saying that the Earth is flat. The same year as the Hansen hearing, George H.W. Bush, Bush Sr., campaigns to become the environmental president. 1988, in a sense, is the year that the Earth spoke back. Our land, water, and soil support a remarkable range of human activities, but they can only take so much. And we must Bush is standing with Lake yes. Erie over his shoulders. I'm an environmentalist. Always have been from my earliest days. He's a Republican environmentalist. That is not inconsistent with being a businessman, nor is it with being a conservative. But in just a few years, by the end of Bush Sr.'s administration, the politics around climate change shift. And this time, it plays out with this president in front of kind of the whole world. Turning now to the global environment at the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro today, the United States indicated that... So now it's 1992, and more than 170 countries are preparing for the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development, which is better known as the Earth Summit in Rio. 
This is one of the first times that countries from all over the world have gotten together to talk about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But at this moment, the U.S. isn't worrying about climate change or a heat wave. They're worrying about the economy, which had just tanked and had become a huge campaign issue as Bush Sr. was running against this young upstart guy named Bill Clinton. So regulating industry, potentially losing jobs, not good in an election year. I know that Americans have many questions about our economy, about our country's future, even questions about me. Let me tell you what is happening behind the scenes here. Bush Sr.'s staff are arguing with each other. Some say, look, this is going to be totally humiliating for you. Others insist he has to go. And it's not clear what he's going to do. But in the end, Bush ignores his naysaying advisors and others in the Republican Party, and he goes. President Bush left Andrews Air Force Base near Washington, D.C. today, bound for South America. And it is this massive event. Along with the U.N. people, there are 10,000 journalists, 17,000 world leaders and representatives. Like all these celebrities show up. There's Jane Fonda and the Dalai Lama and Sting. And John Denver performs at the opening ceremony. The wind is the whisper of our mother, the earth. By the end of the Earth Summit, 154 countries, including the United States, sign the first climate treaty, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And this becomes the framework for Kyoto and Paris and all of the climate change treaties ever since. So, Amanda, it seems like this was a moment. Like, it was really a moment for consensus. It was. Even though the United States, along with a few developing countries, prevented it from having teeth, so it didn't force countries to reduce emissions, it was important because it acknowledged, yes, there's a problem. Yes, the countries of the world, including the United States, agree we are going to work together to solve this. And is the science of climate change up for debate at this point? No. But the oil and gas and coal industries have been paying attention to Rio. And it's right at this time, around 1992, that they start to invest real money into questioning the science. And I found some seeds of this in some news clips, and I'm going to walk you through one of them. This one is from NBC. Turning now to the global environment, at the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro today, the United States indicated that it might be willing to accept... Tom Brokaw sets up the story, and then he turns to his chief science correspondent who explains the science behind climate change. Every time we drive a car, turn on a light, manufacture a product, we use energy. And most of our energy comes from coal, oil, or natural gas. Then there's this animation. It shows little bubbles of CO2 floating around the Earth's atmosphere. Where some scientists believe it can act like the windows of a greenhouse, trapping more and more of the sun's heat. Next, there's a scientist. The world is facing the potential for record heat, record drought, forests going up in flames. And here is the pivot. This next interview is with the owner of a coal mine. If there's anything this country needs now, it's jobs. And precipitous action in form of legislation or international commitments will eliminate jobs in this country, and thousands of them. Okay, so we're watching a story that's like a science report, talking to scientists, hearing about science, 
And then all of a sudden, there's coal miners. Yeah, and the coal miners are supposed to represent the other side of this debate. But it's not the other side of the debate, because we're talking about science, and then, like, here comes a political conversation. Right, because, of course, this is actually about money and regulation. And the coal, oil, and gas industries, they understand the implication. People will lose their jobs. These industries will lose money. So industry starts to bankroll think tanks like Heartland Institute and conferences and scientists, all who spread the same message, that the science behind climate change is wrong. And economics start to appear in science stories. And even weirder still, scientists appear in stories about economics. Greenhouse warming is essentially a non-problem for all practical purposes. S. Fred Singer is a scientist who often defends industries like coal and oil, which are less concerned about the climate than about drastic economic measures being proposed to protect it. Anytime you try to limit the use of energy, you're really limiting economic growth. This guy, S. Fred Singer, is a scientist who has been used for more than one issue before. This is not his first time at the rodeo. I found this old newspaper clip from S. Fred Singer. There are quotes from him and letters that he's written to the editor where he's questioning all sorts of things. He calls into question acid rain. He calls into question ozone depletion. He calls into question the Clean Air Act. He's basically this hired scientist contrarian who now works for the Heartland Institute. And over the years, he gets called on to disagree with an issue that usually has, like, a little bit to do with science mm-hmm. and a lot to do with regulation. Really just to heckle the debate, to, to heckle the media. Or to call into question the debate. And some of these scientists, they worked for the tobacco industry back when the big companies were still claiming that secondhand smoke was not bad for you. And so they got the same people. The same people return for the climate change debate. So this biochemist, his name is Tom Borelli, was paid to run, quote-unquote, scientific affairs for Philip Morris back in 1992. Based on a careful review of the science, we believe that environmental tobacco smoke has not been shown to be a risk factor in the development of lung cancer, respiratory disease in children, or heart disease. And in 2010, this is what the same man has to say about climate change. What happens when it becomes more popularly known that a lot of the science of climate change was faked? So these early climate change deniers, they learn all the tricks from the tobacco industry. And they know that you don't actually have to refute all the science. You just have to, like, plant a little seed of doubt. Right, and then it just will sow a little bit of confusion. And then that will take root and it'll just grow like weeds. And that is exactly what happened. So tell me, where were you back in 1992? What were you doing? Very good question. In 1992, I uh, had been managing campaigns. I was actually uh, working for Rush Limbaugh, the television show. I was his Washington, D.C. correspondent. That was the first year of Rush Limbaugh's TV show. So I actually... This is Mark Morano. He is also called King of the Skeptics or Climate Killer, which are names that he actually kind of revels in. And he is a paid climate change skeptic. And he learned a lot working for Rush Limbaugh in the early days of conservative media. Bottom line, big tornadoes, F3 and larger since the 1950s have dropped dramatically. Bottom line, we've gone the longest period without a major U.S. Category 3 or larger hurricane. He likes to be the I cry BS guy, right? And what he lacks in actually understanding science, he makes up for by being relentlessly outraged. And in 2006, he is deeply outraged by this film. You look at that river gently 
flowing by. You notice the leaves rustling with the wind. An inconvenient truth. Right. And it's at this moment that climate change embodies all of these things that Republicans hate. Government regulation, globalism, and worst of all, Al Gore. (laughs) Yep. I mean, they hate some Al Gore. A new scientific study shows that for the first time, they're finding polar bears that have actually drowned, swimming long distances, up to 60 miles to find the ice. And not to be outdone, Mark Morano releases his own documentary in 2016 called Climate Hustle. It also has a scene about polar bears and sea ice. Are polar bears disappearing? In 1960, as few as 5,000 polar bears roamed the Earth. Fast forward five decades, their population has only grown. There are probably... Why does everybody bring up the polar bears? Like, where did this come from? Well, that's a good question. In my film, we talk about how it's the poster child because they're just, they're an iconic animal and it appeals to kids, it appeals to everyone. And you sort of get the, ooh, ah, especially a mother polar bear with the, you know, their cubs. Polar bears are a good example of how climate change skepticism works. Yes, they are these iconic animals, but both sides use their story for political gain. Global activists, they all talk about the future. They won't talk about the fact that there are now more polar bears ever counted in the history of polar bear counting. U.S. Geological Survey said that they're at or near historic population high. We're now over 30,000 with the latest estimate. They just keep going up and up as people worry about them 50 to 75 years from now. Now, what Morano just said seems plausible, right? I guess, but how does anybody actually know how many polar bears there are? That is a good question, Kai. I called up the chief scientist of Polar Bears International, and he basically said the same thing. That 5,000 number, nobody knows where it came from. They figure it might be a wag, which is a scientific term for a wild-ass guess. (laughs) Okay. Because decades ago, it was really hard to count how many polar bears there were. And the media has done a terrible job on the story of climate change. Although something has started to shift in the last couple of years, lots of younger Republicans believe that climate change is happening. I will tell you as someone who challenged climate change 19 years ago, I've changed. Even Frank Luntz, the Republican strategist who figured out that the term climate change was less alarming to the public than global warming, even he has changed his mind. Rising sea levels, melting ice caps, tornadoes and hurricanes more ferocious than ever. It is happening. But despite all of this, there's still this hardcore group of skeptics, the ones I told you about earlier, who turn up for the Heartland Institute's conference to talk strategy. And Kai, their plans are terrifying because they could work. That's next. So, Amanda, tell me more about your time at the Trump Hotel. Well, at lunchtime, everybody gathered in the presidential ballroom. So, fancy room, chandeliers. And there was a screen up behind the podium. And it's a photo of two MAGA hats. (laughs) But instead of saying, make America great again, these hats say, make Ocasio-Cortez bartend again. (laughs) Oh, my God. So, there are a couple of keynote speakers for lunch. And one of them caught my attention. 
Congressman McClintock is the ranking member of the Natural Resources Committee's Water, Ocean, and Wildlife Subcommittee. It's my pleasure to introduce to you Congressman Tom McClintock. McClintock is a Republican congressman from California, and he has gotten over $200,000 in donations from the oil and gas industries over the years. You know, the left loves to call us climate change deniers. The fact is, they deny the science of climate change, the science that documents dramatic changes in climate throughout the epochs that long predate the appearance of mankind. This is a standard skeptic claim these days, right? They never denied climate change. Of course it's changing, but it's changing very slowly right. over millions and millions of years. So, of course, it's warming a little and the seas are rising a little. A little. But there's no need for alarm. If the mass extinction of all life on this planet is now just 18 months away or 100 months or 12 years or 35 years, take your choice. So after McClintock's speech, I follow him out of the ballroom, along with about a half dozen other journalists. Everyone is trying to get their question in and challenge him with what the science actually says about rising global temperatures. There have been major research papers talking about the rate of change being more than it has been at any time in the last 2,000 years. And McClintock basically says, look... I know what I'm talking about. Congress has held hearings about this. Uh, I can point you to the testimony that we received in the Water Subcommittee just this past year, that the rate is steady, stable, and unrelated to changes in carbon dioxide concentrations. So I went digging into what the congressman is referring to, and I can't be 100% sure his office didn't get back to me. But earlier this year, back in May, a House subcommittee held a hearing on how human activity and industry are destroying biodiversity. Picture a table, there's a group of predominantly scientists sitting there, and squeezed in between them is guess who? Thank you. The chair now recognizes Mr. Morano for five minutes. Thank you. I'm going to thank the House Resources Committee for this opportunity. My background is in political science, which happens to be... Mark Morano. This is the polar bear guy. <laughs> oh, God, yes, the king of the skeptics. Right. He, gives you, he says it's our last chance to save the planet. These are the words of a salesman, a science bureaucrat. Not a Let me unpack this a bit. The Republican members of this committee invite Mark Morano to a hearing on biodiversity. So Morano insists that even though his background is in political science, he is sure that climate change is not a problem for the species of the world. Like the polar bears, everything is totally fine. <laughs> One point in the polar bears, Al Gore mentioned them and featured them as an icon in his first movie. His sequel in 2017 didn't mention polar bears once. They are at or near historic population highs. Now, these climate change skeptics have more access to political power than they've had in the past 30 years since they started doing this. And perhaps the best example of that is a man named Myron Ebel. He ran the EPA transition team for Trump, and he was also introduced as a speaker at this conference at the Trump Hotel. Myron Ebel may be enemy number one to the current climate change community. Good for you. Ebel's focus was on strategy, what this group of skeptics in the room should do going forward. I'll list these out. First, target the Democrats' Green New Deal. For us, the Green New Deal is a winning public policy option. 
And it is going to be the gift that keeps on giving. And I encourage everyone uh, not to take it seriously, but to make fun of it. Uh, I mean, one thing I've learned about these folks, whenever they talk about something a lot, it means they're worried about it. I spoke with Naomi Oreskes about this. She's a science historian at Harvard. And she reviewed thousands of papers on the subject. And she's the one who figured out that there is consensus among scientists. Climate change is happening. 97% of researchers agree. The Green New Deal, I think, has been extremely effective in shifting the conversation away from is it real, is it happening, to what the heck are we going to do about it? And of course, that's what the Heartland Institute hates, because their whole strategy has always been, if you can keep people arguing about the science, then you prevent them from moving on to the policy solution. So that's one tactic. The second, go after the consensus. The second petition is asking NASA to withdraw their statement, which they have on their website in numerous places, that 97% of scientists agree with the global warming consensus. They try to pressure and intimidate scientific organizations to back off the truth. Their own market research shows very clearly that if the American people think there's a consensus on an issue, and this was first proven in the case of tobacco, then they will support government regulation. And the third piece of Ebel's plan is truly terrifying. It's go after what's known as the endangerment finding. Do you know what that is? I certainly don't. So that is a rule that requires the EPA to treat greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide uh-huh. as a pollutant, oh. which basically means it's a danger to humans. It's bad for public health. So the EPA can regulate it. Right. We filed a petition in May to reopen the endangerment finding on the grounds that the endangerment finding had all kinds of process violations and therefore it had to be reopened or it had to be withdrawn. The endangerment finding exists because of the Supreme Court. It told the EPA it had to regulate carbon dioxide as well as the other pollutants, but it was a really close decision. It was 5-4, so it could be overturned. Do you think that could happen? Yeah, because of what's happened at the Supreme Court. Yeah, absolutely. It could be overturned, for sure. The newest justice, Brett Kavanaugh, hasn't addressed this directly, but he has hinted that he's open to overturning it. So it's hard to hear all of this, Amanda, you know, (laughs) because the stakes are so high. And I'm left wondering what we do, you know? Like, what's the road forward? How does Oreskes think that scientists and all these other people who are trying to actually do something... How does she think they can respond to this maddening strategy? She says that her entire scientific career, that she and her colleagues all thought that science would be enough, but that it's not. And this was her parting thought. I wanted to believe, like most of my scientific colleagues, that if we got the science right and explained it clearly, that we'd get the message across and that our political leaders would not be so venal as to deny clear and compelling scientific evidence, and not just of the fact of climate change, but of the harms that it is producing. But that aspiration, that hope has been soundly refuted. So um, since we're scientific about this, we have to say that our hypothesis, that politicians would listen to evidence, that hypothesis has failed the test of empirical evidence. And that tells us we have to do something different. And that's something different, as far as I can tell, is political action. 
Stakes is a production of WNYC Studios and the newsroom of WNYC. This episode was reported by Amanda Aranchik with help from Jillian Weinberger and Elaine Chen. It was edited by Christopher Wirth. Casey Means is our technical director. Karen Froman is our executive producer. The Stakes team also includes Jenny Casas, Marianne McCune, Jonna McCone, Jessica Miller, Kari Pitkin, and Verilyn Williams. With help from Hannes Brown, Michelle Harris, and Kim Nowaki. Stay in touch. You can hit me up on Twitter at Kai underscore right. Thanks for listening.